Our Lord Jesus Christus. I'm so happy to welcome Dr. Kwasniewski here for the third annual <laughs> liturgy lecture at Silver Stream. And so he's, he's certainly already well known to, to all of us. You're very welcome, Peter. Thank you. Well, thank you all for coming. Um, I suppose some of you didn't have a choice <laughs> in the matter, but I appreciate your coming. Um, so the title of my, my talk today is Tradition Reviled and Recovered, a study of false assumptions about substance and accident. Um, so the title, I should probably come up with a different title because it immediately makes people think that I'm going to talk about transubstantiation, which is not what I'm going to talk about, at least not um, directly. It would once have caused no raising of eyebrows to state that Catholicism is inherently a religion of tradition. This was one of the main objections raised against it by Protestants, who, having settled on the doctrine of sola scriptura, discovered, unsurprisingly, that much of what the Catholic Church taught and practiced could not be found verbatim in the Bible. Yet this discovery should not have startled followers of the Apostle Paul, who wrote to the Corinthians, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. 1 Corinthians 11.2 And to the Thessalonians, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 The church fathers drove home this point with their customary vehemence. In his treatise on the Holy Spirit, published in 375, St. Basil the Great tells us, quote, Of the dogmas and messages preserved in the Church, some we possess from written teaching, and others we receive from the tradition of the Apostles, handed on to us in mystery. In respect to piety, both are of the same force. No one will contradict any of these, no one, at any rate, who is even moderately versed in matters ecclesiastical. Indeed, were we to try to reject unwritten customs as having no great authority, we would unwittingly injure the gospel in its vitals." St. Basil helpfully tells us the sort of thing he has in mind. Quote, to take the first and most general example, who is there who has taught us in writing to sign with the sign of the cross those who have trusted in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? What writing has taught us to turn to the East at the Eucharistic prayer? Which of the saints has left us in writing the words of the invocation at the displaying of the bread of the Eucharist and the cup of blessing? For we are not, as is well known, content with what the apostle or the gospel has recorded, but both in preface and conclusion, we add other words as being of great importance to the validity of the ministry, and these we derive from unwritten teaching. Moreover, we bless the water of baptism and the oil of the chrism, and besides this, the catechumen who is being baptized. On what written authority do we do this? Is not our authority silent and mystical tradition? Nay, by what written word is the anointing of oil itself taught? And whence comes the custom of baptizing thrice? And as to the other customs of baptism, from what scripture do we derive the renunciation of Satan and his angels? 
Does this not come from that unpublished and secret teaching which our fathers guarded in a silence out of the reach of curious meddling and inquisitive investigation? Well had they learnt the lesson that the awful dignity of the mysteries is best preserved by silence. What the uninitiated are not even allowed to look at was hardly likely to be publicly paraded about in written documents." Unquote. Another church father, St. Vincent of Lorraine, around the year 434, had this to say in his great treatise, Commonatory for the Antiquity and Universality of the Catholic Faith Against the Profane Novelties of All Heresies. That's a title Hilaire Belloc would have been proud of. Quote, keep the deposit. What is the deposit? That which has been entrusted to you, not that which you yourself have devised. A matter not of cleverness, but of learning, not of private adoption, but of public tradition. A matter brought to you, not put forth by you, wherein you are bound to be not an author, but a keeper, not a teacher, but a disciple, not a leader, but a follower. Keep the deposit. Preserve the talent of Catholic faith inviolate, unadulterate. That which has been entrusted to you, let it continue in your possession. Let it be handed on by you. You have received gold. Give gold in turn. Do not substitute one thing for another. Do not for gold impudently substitute lead or brass. Give real gold, not counterfeit." Unquote. Such quotations could be multiplied indefinitely. The Church Fathers saw Christianity as a social and hierarchical religion in which certain men, the apostles and their successors, had been entrusted with dogmas, liturgical practices, and moral judgments that were intended to be passed on faithfully from one generation to the next. As the theologian Louis Biot observes, revealed doctrine in its totality was first deposited in tradition. That is, in the minds of the men whom God had chosen as his confidants, and only subsequently was some of it placed in writing at the discretion of the ones to whom the deposit had been given. So in other words, the gospel of Matthew was deposited first in the mind of Matthew, and then he chose to write down that which he chose to write down. So tradition in that sense pre-includes pre and predates um, scripture. Tradition, however, is a complex reality. One of the best neo-scholastic manuals, the Manuale Theologiae Dogmatice of Jean-Marie Hervé, distinguishes four kinds, dominical, divino-apostolic, humano-apostolic, and ecclesiastical. I'll define each one of these. Dominical tradition is that which was established by Christ himself, such as the indissolubility of marriage. The apostles, for their part, handed on certain things, either when they were moved by the Holy Spirit to do so, the ordination of deacons would belong to such divino apostolic tradition, or when they deemed it fitting to do so, acting by their human judgment as Christ's representatives. In this latter humano apostolic category may be placed those initial determinations of liturgy that would develop over time into the Western and Eastern rites of Christendom. The law that Christians should practice fasting and abstinence also belongs in this category. 
Lastly, ecclesiastical tradition refers to everything that the church has instituted or adopted after the time of the apostles. For example, the Lenten fast, the octaves of Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost, or the vestments to be worn by clergy. The first two categories, dominical and divino-apostolic, may be called tradition with a capital T. In their origin and in their content, they are divine and, like God, immutable. The last two categories, humano-apostolic and ecclesiastical, may be called human rather than divine, but with the important qualification that they come into existence under divine guidance and possess a measure of divine authority. Although ecclesiastical traditions develop and change, the consistent practice of the Catholic Church over the centuries, it would in fact be no exaggeration to call it a rule or a principle, has been to carry along with her whatever is already part of her life and the more so, the more universally it permeates the body of the faithful. Two corollaries follow. First, the longer the tradition, the more certain it is to be true, fitting, and beneficial. Second, new practices are to be admitted only when they refine, crystallize, amplify, or otherwise enhance traditions already in place. The great veneration in which the church holds her traditions comes through in the following words of the Council of Trent, praising the Roman canon. Quote, Since it is fitting that holy things be administered in a holy manner, and of all things, this sacrifice is the most holy, the Catholic Church, to the end that it might be, worth, it might be worthily and reverently offered and received, instituted many centuries ago the holy canon, which is so free from error that it contains nothing that does not in the highest degree savor of holiness and piety and raise up to God the minds of those who offer. For it consists partly of the very words of the Lord, partly of the traditions of the apostles, and also of pious regulations of holy pontiffs." Unquote. Acknowledging with Hervé that there are different kinds of tradition in the church and that not all enjoy the same immutability or authority, we should nevertheless value the whole of our tradition because all of its elements constitute the beautiful and subtle tapestry of the faith. It is therefore not only misleading, but dangerous to make too sharp a distinction between what is essential or primary and what is accidental or secondary. For example, one hears it said, all that matters at mass is that Jesus is present. Everything else is secondary. Undoubtedly, it matters a great deal that Jesus is present, for otherwise we are eating no more than ordinary food. But the liturgy has a greater purpose than putting on a meal for us. And even our Lord's presence has a greater scope and purpose than sacramental communion. The Mass is the solemn, public, formal act of adoration, thanksgiving, and supplication offered by Christ the High Priest to the Father and by his entire mystical body in union with him. It is the foremost act of the virtue of religion by which we offer to God a sacrifice of praise worthy of his glory. It is the chief expression of the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. It is the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven into our earthly time and space. It is the nuptial feast of the King of Kings. It is the recapitulation of the entire created universe in its Alpha and Omega. Because it is all this, and still more, 
The church down through the ages has spared no effort and no expense to augment the beauty and elevate the solemnity of her liturgical rites. As Pope John Paul II said in his final encyclical, Ecclesia de Eucharistia, quote, like the woman who anointed Jesus in Bethany, the church has feared no extravagance, devoting the best of her resources to expressing her wonder and adoration before the unsurpassable gift of the Eucharist, unquote. So while it may be true that the only things necessary for a valid mass in the Roman rite are unleavened bread and wine of grapes, a priest and the words of consecration, to see this as sufficient would betray a reductive, minimalist and parsimonious view of things. Glorifying God and sanctifying our souls are deeply and intrinsically bound up with the fittingness of the worship we offer him. We could make an analogy. Dominical tradition is like the soul. Divino apostolic tradition is like the body. And the remaining two, humano apostolic and ecclesiastical, are like the clothing worn over the body. All three come together to make the man. Someone might say that a person's clothing isn't important because it's not a part of his nature or essence. Aristotle classifies clothing as one of the categories of accident. The essential thing is to be who and what you are, a person and a human being. What you are wearing is purely incidental. The fallacy of this reasoning consists in substituting a metaphysical consideration for a moral and psychological one. Our clothing is metaphysically extrinsic to us, but for all that, we are not nudists. Our clothing is an extension of our humanity, a manifestation of our personality. We need not go so far as to say the clothing makes the man, but without a doubt it presents the man, typifies him, readies him for one task and not another, and also disguises or hides or shields him. Similarly, the essence of the church's liturgy is simple. It is pre-contained pre in the heart of Jesus where all worthy worship perpetually exists. But the clothing of that worship is of decisive importance to us who interact with the heart of Jesus, not immediately, unless we are favored mystics, but immediately through his visible body, the church, and her visible rites. How these rites are structured, performed, and participated in will inevitably influence our understanding of the mysteries of the faith and our ability to live them out. Consider the relationship of what we say and how we say it. What we say is the conceptual, conceptual content we wish to communicate to another. How we say it includes diction, elocution, and emotion, that is, choice of words, clarity of pronunciation, and tone of voice. Take Hamlet's famous soliloquy. To be or not to be, that is the question whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them. To die, to sleep, no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. What if we attempted to rewrite this great speech in the style of a modern-day textbook? The question for him was whether to continue to exist or not, whether it was better to suffer the attacks of an unbearable situation, 
or to wage war on the numerous troubles that afflict a person, and by opposing them, end them. To die, he pondered the prospect. To sleep, as simple as that. And with that sleep, we end the heartaches and the thousand natural miseries human beings have to endure. It's an end we would all greatly hope for. Or if we compare a page in any great romantic poet with the screenplay of one of today's forgettable Hollywood films, we can see immediately that even if both are dealing with the same reality, say, eros, or erotic love, the way they say it is so vastly different that they might as well be talking about different realities. Regrettably, we encounter the same contrast when comparing an eloquent translation of the Bible, such as the King James Version or the Knox Version, with a tone-deaf translation like the New American Bible, by which countless ears in the United States have been under assault for decades. Dr. Anthony Esselin, in fact, says that the NAB, the New American Bible, is written not in English but in Nabish, a language spoken by no existing race of creatures. If humans were pure intellects, they could exchange between themselves concepts without words, as the angels do. But in reality, we are embodied intellects, or with greater Thomistic realism, intellectualized bodies. And so the meaning we intend to convey includes the manner of conveyance. Here, the body and its clothing are, in a way, inseparable. Joseph Shaw has spoken of the naivete of saying, dogma is one thing, how you express it is another, as if the words we use to articulate Christian doctrine, the external forms, are like a bunch of different t-shirts that can be cycled through ad libitum, as long as the size stays the same. But we have seen that this is a false metaphor. In reality, the way something is said is intimately connected with what is being said. A dogmatic formulation as given by a church council or a pope is, in its concrete particularity, the manifestation of the truth to which the church has arrived by dint of study, debate, and prayer, and which she authoritatively imposes on the faithful. The truth to be held is not a concept beyond the formula, but the concept in the formula. It is, in short, a miniature likeness of the word made flesh. It is not as if our authoritative formulas, such as the Nicene Creed, are groping for something adequate but never quite reaching it. The creed is perfectly true in every line and need never be changed. There are, to be sure, additional truths we can add, and that is why our creeds get longer over time. But what was already there is not altered or discarded. To give a liturgical application, it is not a matter of indifference whether we say, Lord, I am not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed, as English-speaking Catholics did for 40 years at the ordinary form, or, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed, as Catholics have said since 2011. It is not a matter of indifference whether we say it once in English or three times in Latin. It is not six or one half dozen whether we receive communion standing and in the hand or kneeling and on the tongue, or whether the holy sacrifice is offered facing eastwards and outwards to the Son of Justice or inwards to the congregation. These are not the same things said in different ways. 
They are, at best, similar things said in various ways. Sometimes, alas, they are contrary things being said in contrary ways. Separating substance from accident, the essential from the incidental, the concept from the expression, the meaning from the manner, is not so simple after all. Indeed, I am aware of only one instance where, by divine power, substance is separated from accident, namely in the miracle of transubstantiation. In every other case, substance and accident are together, at times even tightly bound, the way hair, which is not alive, is nonetheless rooted in the scalp. And we should take this to heart when considering the value and weight of humano-apostolic and ecclesiastical traditions. For it is just these traditions, including some that go back to the apostolic age, as St. Basil reminded us with his mention of ad orientem, that have fared badly in the past 50 years. We have seen a wholesale discarding, almost a Stalinist purge of traditions. There is, however, a divine irony in our current situation. Younger generations now encounter the re-emerging traditional Roman liturgy in its beauty and power as if they were something quite new rather than something already around and taken for granted. This unforeseen glow of newness on the aged face of religion often produces a feeling of excitement, wonder, delight. It is provocative and challenging. It nourishes faith like a superfood. Generations born after the Council can encounter things like Latin, Gregorian chant, polyphony, ad orientem, Gothic chalices, or brocade vestments for the first time, and have the reaction, this is the way things should be. They are, one might say, reliving or relearning the very reasons why the Holy Spirit inspired the Church to adopt these practices and works of art in the first place. The reappearance of elements of Catholic tradition that many had considered dead and buried has something of the magical quality of a time-lapse film that shows plants rapidly growing from seed to maturity to fruit. We younger folk have the privilege of receiving all at once, as if descending fully formed from the heavenly Jerusalem, a heritage that took centuries to reach perfection. Youth are always being told by well-meaning new evangelizers, you were made for more. This is the contemporary version of St. Augustine's oft-quoted line, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. This more, this active resting in the beauty and holiness of God, is precisely what the traditional Roman rite of the Mass, the ancient divine office, sacraments, sacramentals, devotions, and artifacts offer to us in a savory abundance that is all the more welcome, the more starved of sacrality and thirsty for transcendence we postmodern wanderers are. In a lecture entitled The Profanation of the Sacred and the Sacralization of the Profane, Dom Karl Wallner, a monk of Heiligenkreuz Abbey who has worked for decades with youth, describes how he came to see the fundamental problem of contemporary Catholic worship as its lack of a palpable feel of or encounter with the sacred. This is what uh, Dom Wallner has to say, quote, the experience of the sacred is more fundamental than the notion of the divine. This means that religiosity is based in the first place on letting oneself be touched by the existence of something that transcends the everyday through a sort of purity and majesty, 
something that compels respect, something unexpected. It is only based on this experience that a man seeks the origin of this sentiment in God. The necessity of being affected by what one feels is sacred, even to the point that it makes our hair stand on end, is fundamental for man, for man is predestined for the sacred. If we do not cultivate the sacred and the dignified in our churches, if we forget the tremendum and facinosum, the, 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 the overpowering and the, and the fascinating, then we can expect that human psychology will go looking elsewhere to fill, the, to fill the need to tremble before something majestic. If we degrade our liturgical ceremonies to the level of simple mundane ceremonies, if we banalize them, we should not be surprised to see people going elsewhere to satisfy their innate desire for sacred places, sacred symbols, sacred texts, and persons to venerate." Unquote. The liturgical and ecclesial reforms of the 1960s tended strongly towards desacralization in the name of adaptation to modernity or aggiornamento, but a modernity conceived of in rationalistic, utilitarian terms, which crowded out the sensuous, the poetic, the intuitive, and the mystical dimensions of Catholicism. <clears throat> Why were these reforms doomed to failure? Let us conjure up before us a typical parish mass in any town USA. The event is wall-to-wall -wall verbiage from, good morning, today is the umpteenth Sunday of ordinary time. Our opening hymn is, God, what an awful hymn this is, to, the mass has ended, have a nice day. Are there many young adults who would want to have anything to do with that? How many people wish to be talked at in the opening rite, three readings, a rambling homily, the anemic and sentimental prayers of the faithful, the out loud Eucharistic prayer, the communion rite, and the closing remarks? This is hardly a recipe for attracting converts and reverts. The so-called nuns, those who profess no religion, would rather fast with Zen silence or take mind-altering drugs than surfeit on an all-you-can-eat buffet of words. Newspapers, magazines, social media, and blogs regularly feature testimonies from Catholics young and old about how their encounter with the traditional liturgy was a dramatic moment of discovery an unexpected shock of the beautiful, a theophany. Meanwhile, the world of modern worship, as cutting edge as disposable razors, continues to bleed its population. As a writer on liturgy, I frequently hear from people who want to share their experiences with me. Sometimes they say the traditional Latin mass has taught them for the first time how to pray, rather than merely saying prayers. They speak of being moved to tears by its solemn beauty, and I have seen this firsthand as a music director. We ought to dwell on the significance of such tears, which are a sign of being moved in the depths beyond the noise of opinions and preconceptions, the sign of an interior release and restoration, both a coming to oneself and a going out of oneself. A blogger who describes herself as a proponent of the reform of the reform admitted that there is something quite special in the old Latin mass. Quote, this taste of heaven, this time out of time, strengthens my heart for the rigors of the gospel like nothing else has ever done. The receptivity has to do with a certain silence and peace. 
I experience silence, interior silence, even when there is a great deal of activity, for example, at a solemn high mass with its overlapping motions and sounds, with prayers repeated, whispered, announced. It is very calm. I breathe more deeply. Such a quiet peace." Unquote. A high school valedictorian of Gregory the Great Academy declared, quote, Though it was strange at first, I quickly came to fall in love with the structure and the poetry of the traditional mass, and most of all, with the musical traditions that bind East and West into a chorus of divine praise. I came to know anew what I had always known but never understood, the tradition of my faith. Much in the same way as I was converted to appreciate the many beauties of the Byzantine divine liturgy, I was drawn into a new understanding of the Roman rite, seeing in its structure a common purpose, which is the purpose of salvation and the depth of the sacred traditions. Through these traditions and the experience of the liturgy, I was brought into a new experience of my place in the divine family and my spiritual heritage. I was thrown headlong into a new world of tremendous meaning and mystery." Unquote. So that's a high school valedictorian. It's very interesting to reflect on that kind of witness. As if to sum up all such reactions, Dom Alcuin Reed says, quote, its demands bring forth a, re a response in us. We find that the restraint and beauty of the ritual, the silence in which we find space to pray interiorly, the music which does not attempt to imitate the world or soothe the emotions, but which challenges us and facilitates worship of the divine. Indeed, we find the overall ritual experience of the numinous and of the sacred to be uplifting and nourishing." Unquote. Wait a minute, a skeptic interjects at this point. Isn't all this just a kind of aestheticism? Aren't you people getting preoccupied with superficial things and forgetting what really matters? That, to be sure, is a common objection advanced against traditionalists. It can be refuted if we return to the relationship of substance and accident. For it is not merely the case that substance and accident always go together, and that outside of the Holy Eucharist we never get one apart from the other. More to the point, we perceive substance through its accidents. They are precisely what give us access to it, purchase on it, insight into it, awareness of its depths. Concerning the power of intellect to read the interiors of things on the basis of what is taken in through the senses, St. Thomas Aquinas writes, quote, within the accidents lies hidden the substantial nature of the thing. Within words lie hidden the meanings of words. Within likenesses and symbols lie hidden the symbolized truth, and effects lie hidden in causes and vice versa, unquote. The non-essential opens on to the essential as a smile or a scowl, laughter or tears open onto the heart, or as the ocean receding off to the horizon opens onto the infinity of its maker. The greatest works of art have just this quality to them. As we gaze at the immediate contours and colors of a portrait by Vermeer or Rembrandt, our mind is born beyond it to a reality greater than anything an artist could ever paint, the intensity of life the light of the soul. Beauty happens, so to speak, when there is a clarity about what the thing itself is. When someone is attracted to the traditional liturgy for its sights and sounds, it is not because he is stuck on these things, 
but because these things coalesce around the reality, the sacrifice of the cross, and make it stand forth with a satisfying clarity. The surface qualities or accidents so harmonize with the nature of the mystery that the result is the splendor of the truth. For men as body-soul composites, for Christians as disciples of the word made flesh, there must be both elements, the truth and the splendor. It would be unfitting to put a king's robes on a pauper or a gold ring in a pig's snout. There is discordance between the decoration and the thing decorated. The same holds in the other direction. A king does not wear dirty rags, nor his horse a cheap saddle. Putting the king's robes on the king and bedecking his mount in regal fashion, this is dignum et justum. The surface should correspond to the thing's nature and lead us directly into it. This is not to be caught up in the externals, but to be caught up by the externals into the inner meaning. It is through humano-apostolic and ecclesiastical tradition as accidents that we have access to dominical and divino-apostolic tradition, the substance. The wealth of more changeable and, if you will, superficial features gives us access to the wealth of the unchangeable deposit, purchase on it, insight into it, awareness of its depths. What we encounter through ecclesiastical traditions is the divine truth in its incomprehensible majesty. And we have no other way, short of direct divine inspiration, to encounter it. This is why the love of liturgical tradition is not a passing whim or a fixation on externals, but a natural and necessary path to the very heart of the matter the sacred heart of our Lord, and the wisdom and love he has willed to entrust to his church. It seems only appropriate at Silverstream to quote Mother Mechtil Debar, who, speaking against the Jansenists, says something quite similar to what I am saying when she expresses her shock at the lack of care taken in the decoration of altars and sanctuaries. Quote, Jesus Christ, our Lord, was to make his entrance into his house. The next day, the day of the Feast of All Saints, she, Mother Mechthild, said, as if all in amazement, what inconceivable goodness of our Lord to want to dwell with us. Oh, how great a day is tomorrow, a great feast for us. All that is most beautiful, most magnificent should be brought so that I may adorn the altar with it. I am truly astonished how all that is most rich and rare is not brought from every part of the world to put on the altar. What? When kings make their entry into their towns and kingdoms, every sort of pomp is prepared to receive them. And what? My God will come to dwell among some poor little wretches and paltry creatures, and no one thinks about this? It is amazing. I cannot bear it, and I do not know how to be astounded enough at these Jansenists who do not want to adorn their altars. She said these words in a manner so touching and loving that she truly expressed the sentiments of her good heart." Unquote. <coughs> Recall certain poignant lines quoted earlier. I was so overcome by the solemnity and beauty of the mass that I was reduced to tears. This taste of heaven, 
This time out of time strengthens my heart for the rigors of the gospel like nothing else has ever done. A new world of tremendous meaning and mystery. Its demands bring forth a response in us. Those were four different people. Such reactions are not in response to the real presence of Christ, which is there in any form of the Mass. They are reactions to a concentrated constellation of ecclesiastical traditions that was handed down for centuries and indecorously scrapped in the post-conciliar reinvention of our corporate self-image. Traditional liturgy has the power to induce in us appropriate attitudes when we are assisting at the Holy Sacrifice, privileged to be in the flesh and blood presence of our Lord, humility, reverential fear, devotion, contrition, self-abandonment, tranquil joy. Without these attitudes, how can we be those true adorers who adore the Father in spirit and in truth? How will the church find healing from her interior chaos or be able to offer to the world a sure salvation? All you proponents of the new evangelization, I want to ask, are you listening? Are you listening to the census fidelium, the vox populi dei? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The revival of tradition is an extraordinary grace of our times, given in response to the alarming amnesia of identity, the crisis of fidelity through which the Catholic Church is passing in our times and which, after a relatively peaceful interlude with Pope Benedict XVI, is unfortunately now intensifying. It is as if the recrudescence of modernist cancer is being met with the cellular regeneration of tradition. In the end, Catholics will be traditional or they will not be at all. To us, this realization brings both comfort in the midst of trial and a sense of growing responsibility. Tradition is not something that automatically prevails without our effort. A contemporary author speaks of the labor of gratitude. Truly taking possession of a heritage means being aware of its value, being grateful to God for it, laboring to get to know it better, and working to ensure that it remains alive and well, that it will, in spite of every obstacle, be passed on to the future. We must make our own the sentiment of the psalmist. My lot has fallen happily to me. My inheritance is precious to me. Psalm 15, 6. St. Augustine once wrote, God who created you without you will not save you without you. Happily, we do not have to create ecclesiastical traditions, but we are asked by God to save them with his help. These traditions deserve environmental protection far more than any endangered animal or plant species has ever deserved it. Surely St. Paul is interceding for us and continues to admonish us from his apostolic throne in glory. Brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions.